Welcome to another episode of the Spinoza Triad Philosophy Podcast. Where myself, John Gibbs, Dr. Richard Miller and Dan Rowland discuss philosophy and try to make sense of philosophical ideas for no other reason than we find this stuff quite fun and interesting. And also to force us to read things. This week, unfortunately Dan couldn't join us, Richard and I have been reading... Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher of the 19th century, and particularly his book Either Or. This is what we made of it. Is your, is your, is your camera turned on, John? Yeah, I've got the little light next to my camera. I, I, clearly, I, I can see me as well, so Never mind. It's probably the Chinese. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. This is this is in somewhere <laughs> in Beijing right now. This has popped up on a screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here they go. They're they're, they're, they're yeah, at it again. They're scouring this data and they're not sure what to do with it. But yeah, don't <laughs> stick it in the bin. <laughs> they're, 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 they're listening to this and they, they're now convinced that Western civilization is over. Anyway, so yeah, so where where should we start then? Let's start. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, we set ourselves a task, didn't we, to read Kierkegaard and find out more about him, and so it's been a fascinating discovery. I, I, I've liked it, even though it's a fairly austere kind of message. Uh, I think you know. Yeah, I mean. Well, uh, yeah, I'm just. uh, I think it's a. That's it. That's it. That was the end of that thought. Actually, it's an austere. It's a somewhat austere message. It's a. It's a hard challenge he lays down. He's not a thinker with a set of like this is Kierkegaard thinks, and you can sort of bullet point out you know his arguments. They're largely within the way in which it's written in the pseudonyms that he uses, especially well in, in either or. Anyway, had you heard of him? Before? I mean, it's not like you heard of him. Had you had any kind of interactions with his stuff? Before no, not before? at all. So uh, my, my knowledge of Kierkegaard was. Uh, Kierkegaard, the, the the inspiration for existentialism. So I thought, okay, I, I think I know a bit about existentialism, but he must say stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, so, and that was it. And then I started reading a bit. And what did you think? What are your sort of um, your t- yeah, takeaway thoughts with that? Well, so I, I plunged into either or, which I think was his, we were saying before we started recording, when I, when I say his, his successful yeah. books, I don't think he was widely read in his lifetime, but, but it is... Notor- this book gets, is notorious because it's got a section in it called The Seducer's yeah. Diary, which is scandalous. So, so lots of people are talking about it. He publishes this book and it's his, then, then he becomes noticed, as it were. And as you say, he writes in all of his books, I think. I don't think he writes in his own name at all. I think all of the books are authored by imaginary characters he's created, with sometimes quite absurd sort of names. In order, in, in order that you're not fooled into thinking this is, I wonder if this is... This is written by Kierkegaard. No, it clearly is written by Kierkegaard, but he's going to write in yeah. the voice of somebody else. So the first thing you think, well, what do you actually believe? It's almost like he's presenting the reader with some kind of thought experiment. So try this, think think this. You know, the more you sort of delve into him, I mean, he's a Christian, isn't he? He has a, a very, I'd say, a sort of critical Christian perspective, doesn't he? he? He has a faith, 
but he was very critical of the way in which the churches were run at the time, wasn't he? He mentions about sort of lifestyle Christianity as opposed to what he deems as actual faith, which, which again, for him, faith being something that hinged around doubt, he, he argues that, that the concept of faith is, is really a, a couplet of, of belief and doubt together. So those two things together will give you faith. And the idea, I mean, he's famous for, isn't he, the leap of faith. I wonder if it's worth here, John, just going over the, the kind of backbone of, of either or. Okay, yeah. He, I mean, he, so it's his first big successful book. It's, written, it's two books written by ostensibly two authors. The first uh, first one, and then there's an introduction which explains that the manuscript of this book yeah. was found in an old bit of furniture. And he opens it, and he discovered this uh, manuscript. These are, these are the, the letters and writings. Some of them uh, are... So it's just a list of aphorisms, but the bulk of the first part of the book is written by an author called A. That's all he is, is A. And he is an aesthete, and he's going to describe the aesthetic life, and he's going to describe his friend, who's a seducer, and the pursuit of beauty. So it's, it's either or. And the, the, the or is the um, second part of the book by Judge, Judge William, who's writing letters to A to try and dissuade him from this presumably somewhat what he sees as dissolute life and instead embrace a life which has purpose. His principal objection to the aesthetic life is that it has, it's purposeless. You, did you not think that? I mean, the, it's quite, on the one hand, quite easy to look at it and think it's quite derogatory towards, you, you, well, you, you assume, don't you, that we're going to get here a, a very negative view of the aesthetic life and then really one good for the, for the um, ethical. But the way in which he describes the aesthetic life uh, and it's just it's a theme that goes through quite a lot of his stuff. Is it's not necessarily it ends up negative in terms of it. You, he talks about anxiety, and despair, doesn't he? Um, forms of despair, but it's not just a sort of hedonistic kind of. Uh, I don't know. Like, like I think I think in sort of a contemporary culture, we'd say you know someone is a hedonistic, drink drugs, parties, and this kind of thing. Because he talks about the artist and the musician and, and these kinds of quite. I guess, on the one hand, quite honourable pursuits that he considers to be, yeah. that, that, that really will never lead you out. It would, he talks about, doesn't he, a cellar in a house. You can never leave the cellar while you're pursuing the aesthetic existence. I didn't necessarily feel that you need the ethical as, as strongly, perhaps, as he does. No, no, absolutely. And there's, there's a sort of 19th century movement, the aesthetic movement. I mean, people like Oscar Wilde, who are, you know, beautiful mm. young men who are bored by life. And what is it, Oscar, Oscar Wilde says something like, um, the, the, art, the art of life is to be, to be astonishing, yeah. but be astonished by nothing. So you're, you affect boredness, you're bored by life, but you, but you live a life dedicated to beauty. Not, as you say, not, not one woman in the song necessarily, I mean, though there is a seducer in the first part. It's, it's the pursuit of the... Of the gorgeous, uh, it's it's a bit like that that late again that late nineteenth century romanticism, which clearly Kierkegaard is not attracted by the idea of the um, the mystery within the beauty, the the arts and craft houses, the William Morris houses. Things must be perfect. Things must be crafted. Enjoying the moment. Well, actually, that's a very attractive sort of philosophy of life. Really, it's not a million miles away from yeah Epicurus. You know that kind of. That kind of living, living in the moment. There's, there's beauty that in ordinary. That aspect of the aesthetic life is 
the pursuit of pleasure. Where that leads him, though, um, is to the anxiety caused by choice, doesn't it? This, this is where it starts to become a problem because, on the one hand, you, you know, this idea of embracing the arts, you know, embracing, I guess, almost like creativity, isn't it, in some respects? But the aesthetic existence was that you you become then plagued by choice, and there's that there's a, a fantastic. Um, if you marry, you will regret it. If you do not marry, you will regret it. If you marry and do not marry, you you, you know that, that the bit there. Yeah, <laughs> you're doomed to yeah. disappointment and this kind of bored, underwhelming feeling. The issue life. there is, is 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 as much with the actual aspect of choice itself. The aspect of choice itself. I think that's one of the things that he's he's trying to get at there, isn't it? That if you have too much choice, you end up almost crippled by it. It's a bit like um. What's his name? Um, Tim Ferriss. Mm. Uh, have you ever listened to his stuff? He did Four Hour Work Week and Four Hour Body, a few things. Really interesting guy. Has a podcast and stuff he does. I remember listening to a podcast with him where he, he was, I think, I don't know if he got a dog. He was talking about getting a dog because it limited, I mean, other than the fact, obviously, he probably wanted a, a dog as well. I like to think it's not the only reason he got one, but it was, uh, he, it was for the idea of choice that it limited the amount of choice he had for a given day. Because too too much choice is not necessarily a good thing. You you end up doing nothing because you can't make your mind up over any one thing, and it's you know, it's been explored, isn't it, by psychology and philosophy over the years? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That that idea that choice induces anxiety. I remember showing my uh, showing students that uh, TED talk by a chap called Barry Schwartz, who'd written a book called The Paradox of Choice, in which he uh, described how there were hundreds, literally hundreds of kinds of salad dressing available in a modern supermarket compared to dozens mm. uh, of, of 30, 40, 50 years ago. So in a lifetime, although it seems quite a, a, a banal sort of observation, it's simply a reflection of the yeah. enormity of choice and the amount of time people spend making choices and having a sense thereby of what they didn't choose. For every choice, there's a sense of the thing you didn't bring home. I wish I'd got the other one by our anxiety. Should I return it? I mean, people like uh, the chap you mentioned, uh, Tim Ferriss, uh, uh, you know, rec recommend things like buy, buy things that can't be returned. <laughs> uh, the art of the art of making bad choices and putting up with it. You know, that's how it's difficult for us to to relearn that idea. Except the products you didn't, you know, that don't live up to the to the advertising. Because things don't live up to the advertising. People like Naomi Klein in No Logo. Another thing we used to explore with students was this idea that consumerism produces anxiety because the anxiety itself has to be satisfied by consuming. It's not, it's not an accident that advertising has an inverse relationship. There's a study by Warwick University, a chap called, Andrew Oswald, who carried out this, you know, an inverse relationship between adver advertising spending in societies and societies with low advertising spending and higher levels of anxiety. In other words, advertising appears, whether there is a direct, there's a, there's, there may be a direct correlation, there might not be a causation, but nonetheless, advertising causes anxiety. I don't think that's a particularly original idea, and I think it's one we've, we certainly have lived with. You know, uh, from Oliver James yeah. in Affluenza, the idea of that prosperity comes alongside a certain degree of anxiety, and anxiety produces the you know the image the the production of images of the life you're not living. 
you could almost describe that as the definition of what advertising is and our society has become enormously good at producing examples of the people who are not living the so-called uh, influencers these young beautiful people who talk to you through filters about their perfect lives i mean that talk about talk about anxiety inducing my goodness there was, however, another study I remember talking to students about, about the old people's home, where they had um, the, old pe- the old retirement community, where they monitored the death rates. Well, hopefully they were monitoring the death rates. And, um, and the number of people who died per year or month, or year, hopefully. And uh, the death rates in the old folks' home, all the people in their deep old age, so there would be a certain amount of regularity to people who are dying. And uh, they introduced into the old folks' home uh, more choice. They, you know, instead of having a, a set menu, Monday it was fish and Tuesday it was meat pie, they introduced a choice on the menu, a little more choice of activities, and death rates declined. Now, the, the startling revelation there appears to be that no choice at all, absolute lack of agency in your life, is also highly corrosive to your sense of identity. Marry, and you will regret it. Don't marry. You will also regret it. Marry or don't marry, you will regret it either way. Laugh at the world's foolishness. You will regret it. Weep over it. You will regret that too. Laugh at the world's foolishness or weep over it. You will regret both. Believe a woman, you will regret it. Believe her not, you will also regret it. Hang yourself you will regret it. Do not hang yourself, and you will regret that too. Hang yourself or don't hang yourself, you'll regret it either way. Whether you hang yourself or you do not hang yourself, you will regret both. This, gentlemen, is the essence of all philosophy. But it is one that's played by choice, isn't it, for him? Yes. And, and that I think that's where he starts to... Because he's got the... I bought the book, actually. It's one one on anxiety. I think it's just called The Principles of Anxiety. Or, but it's something that I think definitely... You know, he's, he's often named as the sort of father of existentialism. But I think that it's the, the concept of anxiety caused through choice and subjectivity. You are wallowing in choice. If you go on a, if you go on a sort of social media, I don't know, an Instagram or something, and you look at the, you can just literally thumb your way through choice. It's just one image after another image after another image, and no one thing takes your interest. You, you are almost training yourself for a form of ADHD, aren't you, where you can't concentrate on any one thing because you're so used to this ever-moving kind of this yeah just constant shifting of images and choice and, and i think as well as that i mean we i think one of the other podcasts we talked about the the hedonic treadmill that really that as, as part of that as well i think this kind of links in with this aesthetic existence that in the end anything that you pursue for for pleasure or for beauty whatever it may be it, you end up very quickly acclimatized to it so this idea of a, of a hedonic you know hedonistic treadmill where you, you it's just you get used to it and then it just keeps moving and moving and moving and 
and you need sort of more and more of it to get some form of satisfaction. But that split up within this with Kierkegaard with this idea of uh, uh, of uh, yes, yeah, I guess it's kind of a, a radical choice, isn't it? Again, it's very modern. That that idea of the of the hedonic treadmill, the it's a very Frankfurt school. So in in the mid twentieth century, it's, a, it's more than a century after after Kierkegaard's death, people like um, Marcuse and so on are going to describe uh, the the consumer pursuit, the euphoria of unhappiness, and you can see euphoric unhappiness around us all the time. We talked, I think we've talked about this before, but it's sort of Desperate scrambling, and and knowing it, and knowing that, that it, you fail because it, it's falling between your fingers. The, the material stuff you get is all going to end up on a tip. <laughs> Everything you do is going to is crumbling away, and you can sense it. I think that is the the sense of the failure of the pursuit of beauty. Beauty is transitory, but I think that's kind of one of the arguments that Kierkegaard's getting out here which launches it launches him into the ethical because the ethical for him is, is almost a bit like a kind of kantian fidelity to one's duty it seems to be the idea that you should then start to live your life in in a way that's dutiful for other people yeah i mean that's the, the problem with the pursuit the pursuit of beauty is that uh, you end up using as judge william points out to me you end up you know, you, other people just become means you, they are, they are like you said. You know, I hope the guy didn't buy the dog just simply as a, as a form of kind of distraction or life limit or something. You know, as a tool. And and that that in that respect, the pursuit of beauty through other people they become simply tools, uh, or, or objects become means by which you distract yourself. Uh, they aren't. There's no purpose to it other than your own selfishness. Ultimately, the pursuit of beauty, the, bo- the bored young man who, who uh, you know, spends his morning at the tailor and his afternoon at the club and is bored by everything he sees, mm. is in, in essence selfish because while yeah. it's very beautiful and very attractive, very witty, he uh, is also purposeless, just, a, just, a, just, a, just an idly moving through life using those around him. They, they, you know, clearly the the East the is going to suggest that the that since we live in a meaningless universe, what yeah. is the truth? You know, other than beauty, beauty is truth. Truth is beauty. That is the only pursuit that's worthwhile, since all your all your morality and categorical imperatives and such like are just so much structure, so much so much so much, lay, so, much so much overlaying. Of the uh, the only real thing you can possibly appreciate, which in, in your brief span is some kind of attempt to uh, find beauty, it's quite, quite an attractive idea. Yeah, it's a te- I mean, it's a terrible responsibility to bear to place yourself at the centre of the world, and to and to and to pursue through choices uh, that pursue beauty in your life. It's a it's a it's a burden. I mean, I was thinking of the film actually, American Beauty, and in American Beauty, there's this. The first part of the film, Kevin Spacey character and his so, so on, you, you find out you find out that he's dead, and then he, they portray a family, you know, sort of suburban family yeah. where they're all desperately miserable. The daughter, the daughter hates the father, <laughs> finds it finds him contemptible, and that the wife yeah. and the and the, they, their marriage appears to be one of mutual loathing. <laughs> he and, and and they find no happiness in this yeah. accrued collection of 
material things that, yeah, yeah. Uh, or the pursuit of a career or the pursuit of objects I've, I've left him bereft of any kind of happiness but the young the young man that the girl his daughter meets a young man who yeah. videos a bag being blown around in the breeze and says ah yeah. in that there is beauty there's beauty in you know, in, a, in the in the ordinary a yeah. piece of garbage floating that's a great on quote, a breeze yeah. oh, that's really very Kierkegaardian isn't it you know that that, that idea of the, the finding the beauty in the moment or at least it's very Kierkegaardian's idea of, of, of what the aesthetic life might be. The whole secret lies in arbitrariness. People think it requires no skill to be arbitrary, yet it requires deep study to succeed in being arbitrary without losing oneself in it, to derive satisfaction from it oneself. One's enjoyment is not immediate, but is something quite different which one arbitrarily ejects. You see the middle of a play. You read the third part of a book. In this way, one derives a quite different enjoyment from one the author has been so good as to intend for you. One enjoys something entirely accidental. One regards the whole of existence from this standpoint, lets its reality run aground on it. I will give an example. There is someone whose chatter certain circumstances made it necessary for me to listen to. He was ready at every opportunity with a little philosophical lecture which was utterly boring. Driven almost to despair, I discovered suddenly that he perspired unusually profusely when he spoke. I saw how the pearls of sweat gathered on his brow, then joined in a stream, slid down his nose, and ended hanging in a drop at the extreme tip of it. From that moment, everything was changed. I could even take pleasure in inciting him to begin his philosophical instruction, just to observe the sweat on his brow and on his nose. Definitely, there's also kind of the idea of modern life being banal, isn't it? There's a nothingness to it, and I wonder if that's quite, quite Kierkegaardian as well. That is very good, God, isn't it? I mean, that, that's why. I mean, that's that's we got onto existentialism. Is is the you know that, that got, got to do that one of them, the clown. He says you know, he says you know like life life is like a theatre. The clown comes out on stage and tells tells the audience that the the theatre is on fire. They think it's part of the act and start laughing. No, no, no. He urges urges even more urgently. The the theatre really is on fire. They laugh even more, thinking it's part of the act. And then he ends up. There's a sort of pause. He says, "That's how the world's going to end." That's <laughs> good, you know. It's sort of stupidity and blunderous nonsense. Much of living any kind of human life, I reckon, is to be deeply disappointed by your fellow man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in in all its yeah. shapes and forms. Well, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Well, either one or the other, isn't it? You know, amazed at how much better or how good people are at certain things, or, or yeah, or just utterly disappointed. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, as as we, I, I, I remember the um, 
the sort of uh, back in the 80s when they went, oh God, the world's going to blow themselves up, the Cold War and they, you know, the mountains and mountains of nuclear weapons and the marches through London. I remember joining CND and thinking, oh, we've got to save the world. Then the Cold War ended. And you think, well, okay, the, the human beings have come through this great test. And yet now, where are we? Unbelievable stupidity. That, back to the 19th century, anyone from the 19th century, kick God around right now. And he said, well, uh, actually, there's a, there's, a, there's a major war going on with Russia and the West. Well, they say, that's, that's, that's what was happening when I was around. The great game, you know, the empires of the world are, are at each other's throats again. Stupidity prevails everywhere. I opened my eyes and saw reality and started to laugh. And I haven't stopped since. A fire broke out backstage in a theatre. The clown came out to warn the public. They thought it was a joke and applauded. He repeated it. The acclaim was even greater. I think that's just how the world will come to an end. To general applause from wits who believe it's a joke. Schopenhauer a little while ago, we looked at Nietzsche and so on. These in the late 19, the mid to late 19th century, and Hegel. We should mention, by the way, that um, uh, Kierkegaard does not like Hegel. He really, he really, and and to some extent, along with Nietzsche and along with um, Schopenhauer, they're re, they're reacting to, to Hegel. And the reason they're reacting to Hegel is Hegel, Hegel, as you say, has a sort of totalizing model of how the world works. It's being driven by a by an intelligence, a, a sort of spirit behind by, behind history, behind society, behind the world, the Geist, and it um, and it, and it and it makes sense. There's a there's no there, there is purpose because humanity's journey through time is purposeful. Well, you know, you've all that. I mean, ultimately, for, for Kierkegaard, although he never saw it, of course, the, the play Waiting for Godot is a perfect example of the way uh, he might view the world. Some men show up. They, Mr. Godot's going to come. He doesn't ever come during the play. They talk. They wait. They, 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 they wonder about life. Um, a young man, a slave called Lucky, only has one speech, but it's a, it's a sort of five-minute rant of nonsense. Well, five-minute rant of nonsense. You could almost just say that's the internet, isn't it? <laughs> the sort of ranting nonsense in a void, in a void, a world of void and purposelessness where nothing happens. People are bored, and they the, the play ends with Mister Godot not showing up, just as he didn't show up at the beginning, and you're not uncertain that he really exists. And in that, in that, in that, that's that's absolutely anti-Hegelian, isn't it? And there's that there, there's no purpose to anything. It's just a drift through. Yeah, I mean, do you know what though? I mean, for, I mean, I guess he's rejecting of Hegel, but he, he does also have concepts of the self that anxiety is kind of hardwired into the human subject because it's a, it's self-relating. So, it, and that's a, that's a kind of Hegelian idea, kind of self-certainty that, that Hegel talks about, where you you come in consciousness comes about when you recognise yourself as a self, and sort of that self-relating is something that he takes on board. But what he does with it is he says, there, you know, he talks about there being this self-relating to different aspects. But until you find 
until you you make that subjective leap of faith, if you like, to uh, to your relationship with God, you, you will always have it, you, it, it's it's a, it's a, it's necessary that you will always be anxious uh, or have this, this element of doubts and and yeah anxiety, I suppose. And you could say that the purposeless, you know, drift through is the modern condition. It's it's the post-Hegelian modern condition. It's the it's the death of God, the failure of science and materialism to satisfy yeah. what the comforts of primitive religion might have done. It's the end of the meta narratives the postmodernists are gonna go on about, you know, the end of the belief in progress, the end of the belief yeah. in the certainties of science, the end of the belief that somehow oh, yeah, things yeah. will work out. Not they will no, no one's coming. No one's gonna answer the call. No one's listening to the prayers. It's a shout in the darkness. Yeah. And that's gonna be repeated constantly through literature of all kinds yeah. and films of all kinds in the twentieth century and then in the late nineteenth century and novels and so on and from Dostoevsky onwards, challenging and asking, what do you then do about this in this post Hegelian world? But we're we're missing a bit out there, John, because he goes, you know, especially in either or, he's not in religious realm yet. He's got that step between that, which is the ethical, which is uh, helping others, the, the the married life, children, you know, doing things for other people. This he he has a suspension. He calls it the suspension of the ethical, where he moves from that into the religious. I mean, I, I felt it, it had a. I mentioned Kant earlier. I don't want to say it sound like this. Just as Kant, I don't drop Kant in the conversation. It's not exactly like... Oh, I do, all the time. Yeah, you know. If, we are, if we're a Kant, I'd just say, oh, Kant, well, you know, it's like, cup of tea, John. Yeah, Kant would like a cup of tea, he would. But it, that kind of, Kant's kind of ethics, isn't it? It's one of duty. And I, and I got the kind of, the, the feeling with the, the, the ethical for um, Kierkegaard. It's really, you know, to, to move beyond this kind of anxious state of continual choice um, there is a stage, there is an ethical stage there where you, in the ethical section, he's making the claim more about married existence, doing things for other people as opposed to thinking about yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 a, it's the, the choice you make. Well, it, it's that choice we've, we've made when you, when you have children and you realise that you have um, committed yourself to the biggest task in life that you'll ever take on and it's a, a lifetime of commitment you could see it. it's very very unselfish very ded dedicated to a future you won't behold They'll, the, the children that you'll bring up will live beyond you and um in a world that you can only sort of pass on to them so it's a very, very it is a very ethical thing to have children and so one and and, and then from there and I felt like uh, you know, a lot of his uh, the other books that he's got as well, kind of aim start going there towards chuck out the bulldog because I can hear him snoring. It's putting me off. <laughs> the, uh, could you hear that through the recording? Anyone hearing that? That's that's Rhino the bulldog pushing up Zeds, which he does quite quite loud. It's just like I could just he was getting louder and louder, and it, it doesn't get quieter the deeper he sleeps. And he, what I enjoyed with Kierkegaard is this idea of the idea of living by your passions, uh, creativity, the arts, this kind of aesthetic mode. Then you've got the ethical, where um, you suspend those things in order for really, a really, you know, an ethical life in in service of others or duty. And then 
an ethical the suspension of the ethical i think he called it which is to introduce the religious form of life which is a form of subjective faith and the best example of that would be i mean in fear and trembling he has abraham who's uh obviously going to sacrifice his son and i'm sure everyone's aware of the story he doesn't end up sacrificing him and god says to him you know you've shown great faith and so in Kierkegaard uses that and and, and, and I think what he's trying to get at is, is the enormity of faith and the subjective nature of it as well because for, for him for Kierkegaard he doesn't reject objective truth in any sense but he's he's kind of more interested in he doesn't mean subjectivity in a sort of postmodern plural sense I think what he's trying to talk about here is subjective purely in a, as you experience it so faith is something which you experience uh, as in a subjective nature with god uh, and it's some and it's a choice that you have to make and like you say before it's not it's not all not necessarily comforting embracing the unknown and finding finding no particular consolation in it as as yeah, it'll, it'll, you'll be miserable until you die, and you know, death, death, death will cure you of that. But the, the, so there isn't a, a hope of delight in finding God. I think, in fact, in fact, if 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 he came, yeah. if Kierkegaard fell into conversation with a sort of born again Christian who said, "Well, I, you know, I, I was thirty years old and I gave up drinking and so on, and I, I found God," he'd say, "Well, you haven't found God. You just, you just, you've just, you've just used God. You've made yeah. up a God. You know, it's how you." for your own purposes find finding god's way beyond that you've got to live your life uh in the pursuit of of a faith that will will leave you continually in, in troubled anxious state and the anxiety is good that anxiety is life the angst isn't something you should attempt to get rid of i think though i i, I think though that he has kind of for him the anxiety is in some respect anxiety in so far as the enormity of of god like you know that's, you know fear and trembling that's the, the name of the book isn't it but it's but the anxiety insofar as the 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 curse of choice which he maps out in the beginning of the you know the aesthetic life i think that that's alleviated through faith i think that's his point through a religious life more than the ethical life you you might experience an anxiety in say the enormity of god the concept of God, but the choice dimension. So he writes quite a lot about different forms of doubt. I think it was in Sickness and the Death, different forms of despair. The inauthentic and the authentic despair, and the finite and the infinite exist in awareness of self. Again, it's going back to that idea of, se of, of a self-relating uh, awareness of the eternal self. <laughs> That one is in despair is not a rarity. No, it is rare, very rare, that one is not in despair. The common view, which assumes that everyone who does not think or feel is in despair is not, or that only he who says he is in despair is, is totally false. authentic and the authentic despair you have that that kind of despair which for Kierkegaard is 
something you're aware of and that kind of despair you're not aware of. I mean, if you can not be aware of despair, in other words, it manifests itself in a, in a in maybe in angst or depression or feelings of um, uh, of incompleteness, but is is masked by this the modern world, the chasing around after material goods. So the inauthentic despairer is someone who doesn't know they're despairing and yet is despairing. Uh, in their and their desperation, their hunger. But it's, it's Lucretius, the man who comes in and out of doors and chases around to his farm, and uh, doesn't and all the time arrives um, as soon as he arrives wants to go somewhere else. This is very, very old. The kind of idea and very common to us, I think, the idea of the despair that is hidden. You know, the pe- the, the laughing, smiling despair, and and masked by. A desperation in which we, you all appear to be having a good time, but why are the people at the party crying? And then there, I suppose, there's the authentic despair, the embracing of despair, the the thorn in the shoe that won't let you forget death and limited time and the inevitable meaninglessness and absurdity of life, which spurs you, as it were, on to seeking some kind of goal, some kind of greater good, some kind of creative energy. Almost immediately after the uh, ministry of Jesus, all the, all the, th- the theologians get hold of it and make it into something else. You know, they, they invent and they construct Things that are in, inexplicable, things that cannot be understood. So, if you, because if you are Anselm's ontological argument for the existence of God is a waste of time. That's just non. That's just um, sophistry. And I think it is faith based in doubt, where someone is making the, the sort of subjective choice to embrace a relationship with God, not knowing, if you like, to take that leap of faith and accepting that as opposed to perhaps one that's more sort of steeped in certainty. That's the religious existentialism. In fact, I can see my dog's Rhea's chewing Groot's collar in the garden, which is uh, not supposed to be doing, which was putting, it was spoiling my flow. episode of the Spinoza Triad. You've been listening to me, John Gibbs, and Dr. Richard Miller, as we discussed some of the works of Soren Kierkegaard, with a particular reference to either or. If you enjoyed our discussion, or you have comments, or you wish to follow updates on our progress as we fail to meet, and sometimes do meet, and the reading we're planning, join the Facebook group, the Spinoza Triad or visit the website, also called The Spinoza Triad. Thank you for listening.
Whenever Richard Corey went downtown, we people on the pavement looked at him. He was a gentleman from soul to crown, clean-favoured and imperially slim. And he was always quietly arrayed, and he was always human when he talked. But still he fluttered pulses when he said, Good morning, and he glittered when he walked. And he was rich, yes, richer than a king and admirably schooled in every grace. In fine, we thought that he was everything to make us wish that we were in his place. So on we worked and waited for the light and went without the meat and cursed the bread. Richard Corey, one calm summer night, went home and put a bullet through his head. Richard Corey by Edwin Arlington Robertson. And the music by Dr. Richard Miller. <laughs>